Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and joining me in the studio is my friend Ariel Kasten. She's rejoined the podcast for a couple of episodes. We are going to cover uh, uh, cutting-edge technology. <laughs> Swords. <laughs> Yeah. See what you did there. I, I made a pun. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're going to talk about swords and for, for people like myself and, and Ariel, this is beyond something that we're just interested in. Uh, the, bo- both of us have done stage combat, mm-hmm. some extensive stage combat. Uh, Ariel, I think you prefer the broadsword to the rapier. I do. Yeah. The bigger, the better. You're crazy. I'm more size of size matters. Okay. Fine. I, I'm more of a rapier person because I think finesse is sometimes called for. Uh, <laughs> and also I have a body type where rapier works better than a big old sword, but we both are, are interested in this sort of stuff. Actually, Ariel and I first met working for the Georgia Renaissance Festival back in 2001, I believe. I think that's correct. Yeah. So correct. long time ago, 2001, we started working there. To, I had been there a couple of years and Ariel joined the cast and she jumped right into doing combat as soon as possible. Whereas I was uh, I decided that was not for me. <laughs> and it was uh, one of those things where both of us have this interest in the topic, uh, and you know, we both like the whole swords and sorcery stuff too. Yep. So, when I said let's let's cover something, and we started talking about the possible topics, swords was one of those things that uh, it's a technology that's been around for longer than longer than written history in some cases, possibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's debatable, but yeah. we'll get to that. So, to start us off, Ariel, can you walk us through? Let's say you're looking at your typical sword like okay. a viking sword mm-hmm. let's say what are the parts of a of a sword all right so there are lots of different kinds of swords but um they all basically are made the same way with the same pieces uh so you've got the the blade right which is, you know the part that you hurt people with right and then you've got the hilt which eh, i guess you can hurt somebody with a hilt but <laughs> yeah. it's not as fun um, and a lot of hilts also have a guard, which protects your hand uh, from other people's swords, mm-hmm. um, which I personally know is a good thing because I've been cut open on the hand by a sword before. So yeah, there was actually a day where Ariel was doing stage combat, got hit in the hand, had to go and get uh, stitches or staples? Mm-hmm. Stitches. Stitches. Five stitches. And then came back and finished the day. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> worth it. So worth it. But uh, so, yeah. So a guard is really important. Um and then you've got a pommel, which is at the very base of the sword, and that helps uh, keep the sword from slipping out of your hand. Because when you're gripping on a sword and you're swinging it around, your hand gets really sweaty. Yeah. Um, and it also acts as a counterweight, uh, which balances the sword. Otherwise, you're using far too much muscle and uh, strength to try to finesse the sword around. Um, yeah, and that, speaking from experience, that can get very tiring even with mm-hmm. the pommel. But if you didn't have that counterweight helping you with those... Uh, those moves, then just the your wrist would get exhausted yeah. and your forearm in order to control the sword uh, while making those swings. You'd be very quickly become an ineffective swordsman. Yes. Um, now, the hilt in the pommel, the, the back end of the sword, the decorative part, um, is called furniture because it's furnishing the sword. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, really interesting, in ancient Europe, the hilt of the sword was the entire back end from the guard to the pommel. And in... Uh, Norse and 
Viking culture. It just meant the lower hilt and the upper hilt, which was like the pommel and cross guard. But not the actual grip. That not you the actual onto. grip, no. So, uh, so the parts that were on either side of the actual grip. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, when we talk about blades, blades also, we can break that down a little bit more. Blades typically have six and sometimes seven different areas to them. Uh, first, you have the edge. This is the important part of the sword. This is the actual cutting side of the blade. Mm-hmm. Now, some swords are single-edged, uh, like the katana mm-hmm. is a single-edged sword. A lot of different um, uh, swords throughout the ages have been single-edged. But others are double-edged swords, like long swords and mm-hmm. a lot of short swords. And uh, even some swords, like epées, are... Yeah, epées, yeah. Are- Yeah, that's true. They technically have three, although those tend to be used more for uh, stabby stabby than cutty cutty. And then you've got the tip. That would be the stabby stabby part. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got the back of the sword. Now, the back only exists if you have a single edged blade. Uh, The back refers to the non sharpened edge of the sword. So if you had a, um, uh, you know, a, a scimitar, for example, is sharpened along the front side, but not the back side. So the back, you don't, since you don't have two edges, you do have a back on that one. Whereas with a long sword, you know, your typical long sword had, uh, an edge on either side. So mm-hmm. you don't have a back on that type of sword. Yeah. There's the flat of the blade that refers to the sides, not the edges. So if you were to slap someone with the flat of the blade, it would sting, but it wouldn't cut them. Yeah, right? you just do that to be a jerk. Yeah. And actually, that's a go-to move from stage combat, too. Yeah, it is. Because you, you usually there's a it, – usually it's the cocky hero mm-hmm. who, uh, uh, while dodging a villain's attack, will slap them on the rear end with the flat of the blade. And, and by the way, that does sting. Yes, it does. Uh, then you have the fuller. Now, the fuller is a narrow groove that runs down the blade of lots of different swords. Not all swords have these, but a lot do. Uh, sometimes they call it the blood groove or blood Ooh. gutter. Uh, and it's not what a lot of people think it is. I, there, I have heard folks say, oh, well, it's, it's a channel for blood to flow through so that when you stab someone, the blood has a place to go. So, uh, you know, as you're stabbing them over and over, uh, they continue to bleed out. That's not what that's for. In fact, it has nothing to do with blood. It has everything to do to making a strong sword without having to use as much material to make that sword. So the the gutter, uh, that, that channel, actually uh, adds structural integrity to a blade so it is able to maintain its shape while still being a little flexible mm-hmm. um, and is able to cut through stuff without breaking. And I guess that would mean it would also be lighter weight. Yeah, because you don't have to use as much material. Instead of a solid steel sword where, you know, you have the whole mass made up like that. You have that channel. It means that you use less material. It means that less material means less mm-hmm. weight. Very important, as it yes. turns out. Uh, I mean, there not everyone is the mountain in Game of Thrones. That's true. You know, That's some true. some of us mere mortals need a little bit of a I rest. Mean, I'm the mountain. The, Ariel is the mountain, <laughs> but I I need more. Uh, I you know, a light sword. I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, we have the tang. Now the tang is the part of the blade that is actually covered by the hilt. Uh, so a sword, if you were to strip the hilt away um, and take away the guard, take away the pommel, you would see a blade that on the base of it turns into almost like a rectangular solid steel, um, usually steel because we're talking about steel today, mm-hmm. uh, but a solid steel tab essentially that 
Uh, if it's a full tang, it's pretty much the width of the blade and runs all the way down to where the pommel would attach. Uh, if it's a partial tang, it's maybe about half the width of the blade. It can even be more narrow than that. Um, and at any rate, this is what the grip fits on top of. Mm-hmm. It's what the guard attaches to. Uh, there's actually um, a shoulder on some on some blades where that's where the guard will yeah. attach, where it won't go beyond. Yeah. Because your guard wouldn't be much use if it just went whing right yeah. off the end of the blade. It'd be really funny, though. It'd be, yeah, It'd be really funny, funny that one time. I prefer a full tang. I know that I have fought plenty of time with swords where the tang was not quite big or long enough, and it's just kind of floppy. In the yeah, yeah, you can actually, if it's not, if the if the handle isn't, properly fit to the tang it, it's loose you can feel it rattling mm-hmm. and that's a, that means you have less control mm-hmm. and also you're doing a lot more work and also it's not it doesn't it just feels unsafe yeah uh, as someone who's fought with these as well no i prefer a full tang sword as well also that affects the handling of the sword yeah. uh, so if you have a full tang sword it's going to feel different in your hand not just because of whether or not the blade is is um, steady inside the, you know, when you're holding the handle, but it's also going to mean that's going to change the balance of the blade. Yeah. So that's something else. Um, also, some swords have what is called a ricasso. Is that where there's a pretty painting on it? That's N- kind of abstracty. No, uh, I mean you can do etchings on swords and stuff, but that is not what a ricasso is. A ricasso is an unsharpened portion at the base of a blade, just above the guard. So. Uh, if you've ever seen a big sword where you've got the big hilt and then the blade, when it first, when it comes out past the guard, you can tell it's not sharp for another, you know, seven or eight inches. Mm-hmm. That's the ricasso. And those were often used, uh, for really, really monstrously big swords where you were using it against pikemen or you're using it against mounted cavalry. Uh, and you just, you, you wanted to have the ability to grip a little higher on the blade. Um, in certain situations. But then again, you're risking getting your fingers cut off. Yes. Uh, interesting. I, you saw some of the footage from the E3 where they had the Viking versus Knights game. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, the thing that it bugged me was that in that game, one of the characters has a finishing move where they flip the sword around so they're holding it by the blade mm-hmm. and they bring bring it down almost like the hilt is acting like a, a bludgeon or an axe. But instead of it being a bludgeon, they hit a person just at the very base of the blade and cut into them to 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 kill your opponent. And the whole time I'm thinking your fingers would be gone. So I, I have a theory about this. OK. OK, because I've been thinking about this and it bothered me, too. Uh I believe that that Viking fought so long and hard that his blade was so dull (laughs) that that it was was, safe to handle. It was safe to handle. It was no longer useful for the purpose it was made for. And he had to turn it around and the only part that's sharp now is the bit that's right above the guard. So I'm just going to flip this around. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I like that you're an apologist. (laughs) I don't know if that's true or not. It's probably not. Probably. So we wanted to look a little bit to at the history of swords because, you know, it's they've been around for quite some time. And actually, when you get to the point of, you know, where were the earliest swords made there? There's a lot of disagreement. Mm-hmm. And it's largely because swords are uh, they're not there's not a rough like a, a very clear definition mm-hmm. of what is a sword versus what is a dagger. Um, generally speaking, you would say a sword is longer than a dagger mm-hmm. and a dagger is shorter than a sword. But that's not very 
satisfying, right? Because it's like saying a mountain is taller than a hill. Yeah. <laughs> like you need, yeah. you, it would be great to have some hard numbers there. Uh, well, uh, there, there are some, it's kind of considered that a dagger is between 17 to 24 inches. Yeah. 45 and, to 60 centimeters. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, because there is that controversy, like we don't actually know. Yeah. When the first swords came about. Right. The, the, there was a, a cool find in 2003 where some archaeologists discovered weapons in Aslantepe, Turkey. And I could be completely butchering that, that place name and I apologize. It looks like Aslantepe to me. Yeah. That's just a total guess on my part. So they, the weapons they found have been forged more than 5,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, this was one of those cases where some of the other experts were saying, well, these aren't really swords. They're just long daggers. And again, like sometimes people argue it's whether or not the use is for uh, attack or defense, because a lot mm-hmm. of people think of a, a dagger as a defensive weapon. Yeah. Um, but but I mean, when it comes down to it, we at least know which came first, the dagger or the sword. Yeah. Yeah. The daggers came first or or even a knife. But if you would consider a dagger or a knife. A sword of a sort, <laughs> um, then you can even go back to the Stone Age because uh, there were sharpened wood and bone and sure. flint and stone knives and daggers then. Yeah. And uh, I mean, when we talk about daggers versus knives, even that gets confusing, right? Because mm-hmm. some people will argue that a knife has a single cutting edge and a dagger has two cutting edges. But it all depends upon. But then a sword has a single or a double cutting <laughs> edge. So, and there's some people who are like, "Well, no, this is a knife. That's a dagger. That's a dagger. That's a knife." And and it's you know. So at any rate, the the reason why we're we're saying it's hard to nail this down is because language itself is complicated. So yes. finding the the specifics are tricky. Yeah. But getting back to that awesome archaeological find over in Turkey, the swords predated the next oldest find by about a thousand years. Wow. Yeah. A millennia passed between these weapons and the next oldest weapons that had ever been found. Um, so that means the swords would have been forged sometime around 3,350 BCE, which is at the very beginning of the early Bronze Age. Uh, the If you think of the ages, the, the three big ones, the Stone mm-hmm. Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. Mm-hmm. This is at the, the just at the end of the Stone Age, the beginning of the Bronze Age. Some people call it the Copper Age, yeah, because copper was a metal that was the first metal that humans discovered. Yeah, well, and so and smithing started with copper and then turned into bronze. Yeah, in fact, the copper that was or the the swords that were found were a copper alloy, right? Yeah, yeah, they were a copper alloy. They had mixed arsenic with it. Um, and Wait, not- so. If you if you cut me, I'd, I'd I'd die from poison. No, no, no. It wasn't it wasn't poisoned blades. Although they might have poisoned their blades. I don't know. <laughs> um, they did it to uh, change the metal to to change its chemistry, and it made it actually stronger. Mm-hmm. And it made the copper because copper is pretty soft. It made it hold its shape and hold its edge. And then also three of the swords were inlaid with silver. Wow. Yeah. So they're so not, fancy. They were they're fancy swords. They weren't just you know old like hackneyed kind of. Gross little things. Uh, right. So <laughs> to it, be technical. if if these swords, this amazing find, if they are if we got to a point where we all said, OK, so these are not swords. When would we say swords really got their start? Um, well, I guess most people would say that uh, swords really got their start closer to 1700, 1600 B.C., uh, which is the middle of the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were made of bronze, which is 
uh, alloy of copper and tin. Um, and, and the argument stems from the fact that a sword has to be strong in order to be used the way it's meant to be used, which is, you know, slicing into people or hacking things apart or right, whatever. Right. Um, and soft metals just don't work for that. So copper wouldn't work so well for that, especially in longer blades like mm-hmm. sword blades as opposed to daggers. Yeah, that's it's absolutely true. Uh, that's why, you know, until we got a better understanding of what alloys were, and we'll talk more about what an alloy is in just mm-hmm. a second, uh, you know, relying on pure metal was tricky because that pure metal couldn't stand up to the rigors. I mean, you get to a point where you're in combat and you are uh, fighting with your weapons. If your weapons are bending or breaking, then obviously mm-hmm. you are at a distinct disadvantage. Uh, so let's talk about some of these materials that were used. All right. So copper and alloys. So copper, as I said, was the first metal discovered by humans. It's mm-hmm. uh, very easy to shape. So that makes it incredibly useful for yeah. stuff. Like if you want to turn it into cookery or mm-hmm. or jewelry or these days, if you want to turn it into wire so that you can run electricity through it because yeah. it's also a great conductor. But that's also the drawback is because it's so easy to be shaped. It's also easy for it to bend. It won't hold on to an edge very well. When we talk about holding on to an edge, we mean that the metal has to be a special kind of hardness. It has to be hard enough so that when you give it an edge and then you hit something, that edge is maintained, but soft enough so that you can make it have an edge in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it's a delicate balance. Uh, so you can sharpen a copper blade, but once you use it, it becomes dull. And actually, I saw a really cool demonstration of this. Uh, the BBC did uh, a whole series about ancient Britain. And at one point, they talked about the the Bronze Age, and they made two arrowheads, and one was made out of copper and one was made out of bronze. Mm-hmm. And they had a little sheet of metal, and they put the copper arrowhead against the sheet of metal, on a, and it had a little, like, arrow extending behind it. They used uh-huh. a hammer. They hit the, the arrow so that the uh, head of the, the tip of the arrow would press against this metal, and the copper just buckled. Yeah. And then they did bronze, and they did the same thing, and the bronze pierced through the metal. So it showed that bronze is a much stronger material than copper. Yeah. So wasn't copper was mostly used in weaponry as a way of giving more weight to stuff like maces and clubs. Yeah. So for the smashy-smashy, but not the slicey-slicey. Yeah. yeah, and you may go, well, but pennies are copper, and I can't bend a penny. And that's because <laughs> they're made from copper alloys yeah. around... 3000 BCE, humans figured out how to make copper stronger by adding other stuff to it, um, making it an alloy, which mm. we've already kind of talked about a little bit. Um, and uh, sometimes the thing they added is another metal. So in the instance of bronze, which is kind of what pennies really are, mm. uh, it's uh, copper and tin. Um, and then sometimes, like with iron, to make steel, it's uh, a metal and a non-metal like iron and carbon. Right. So... When you have an alloy, you've got two main things you're thinking about. It can be more than two, by the yeah, way. You can, in fact, there are some types of bronze where they add uh, magnesium and some other stuff to yeah. it. But uh, the the basic ingredients are are copper and tin. But your prime primary material uh, is called the main metal. So with bronze, that would be copper. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of bronze is made up of copper. Uh, that is, so it's called the main metal or the base metal or even the parent metal. So uh, the other stuff is called the alloying agent, uh, not the annoying agent, <laughs> which is what mine is. 
Aww. The alloying – I don't have an agent, so I can say that. <laughs> the alloying agent. Uh, so the parent metal can be 90% or more of the overall substance. It can be less than that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the alloy may be as little as 1%. Uh, the alloying agent may be as little as 1% or even less of the overall. Uh, when we start talking about steel, we'll be talking about some really amazing – like you have to be super yeah. precise with adding the carbon to your iron in order to get – usable steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so most alloys are solid solutions. So that means the different atoms of material are just mixed together but aren't chemically bonded to each other. Yeah. Uh, the easiest way to imagine this is let's say that you actually – let's say you've got a little dish and you pour pepper and salt into it. Now, the salt and pepper aren't chemically bonded together. You could, with enough patience and a fine enough pair of tweezers, pick out all the grains of salt. Mm-hmm. So they they have not chemically bonded. And no matter how much you mash the salt and pepper and make it into finer and finer grounds, it's still going to be salt and pepper. Right, exactly. You you could get increasingly smaller tweezers and still separate it. You'd be wondering why I'm making you do this. Yes. yes. The answer is because you Cursing know. Your name. You know. Yes. You know true. why. But a few alloys are actually compounds. Now, compounds are different from solutions. Compounds mean that the atoms of the parent metal and the alloying agent actually do chemically bond. So in this case, we would talk about two things that when you mix it together, make a third thing. Uh, so salt itself is sodium and, uh, is, you know, sodium and uh, chloride. Mm-hmm. You p- put those together and that makes salt. You can't separate that back out again easily, right? It's not like you can take really tiny tweezers and like, okay, now I'm going to put all the sodium over here and all the chloride over here. No, you would have to use fancy science. <laughs> yes, you would. Uh, so... The atoms in an alloy are in a structure called a crystalline lattice. So if you were to look at these with an electron microscope, which those are a blast to use, by the way, Uh uh, you'd see the atoms of both the alloy and the parent metal, and they'd be arranged in some way. So some are substitution alloys. These are pretty simple to imagine. So let's say that uh, we'll we'll, we'll talk about – let's imagine that you're talking about a bronze and Mm -hmm. you've got – uh, copper balls, and you've got 10 balls, like T-I-N, not T-E-N. Mm-hmm. And you lay out the copper balls in a grid, and then you remove some of the copper balls and replace them with the 10 balls, just a few, like mm-hmm. maybe 20% of them if you're Chinese, because that's what the Chinese like to do. <laughs> then you would that, – that would be a substitution yeah. alloy. But some of them – are called interstitial alloys, and this is where the alloying agent fits into the crystalline structure and fills up gaps that are in that crystalline structure. Mm-hmm. So for this example, imagine that you have a net, and the net, uh, the, the holes in the net are just big enough so you could wedge a golf ball into them. Yeah. And so you choose some of the holes, not every single one, but some of the holes, and you put golf balls through it. That's going to make the net behave differently than it would if there were mm-hmm. nothing in those holes. Uh, same sort of thing, but on a uh, atomic scale for this. Yeah. Now, uh, even though making an alloy makes the metal stronger, there there is a disadvantage because it also makes it harder to work with. Yeah. Generally so. speaking, you you trade off malleability, mm-hmm. which is the ability to work a metal, for uh, a stronger material. Mm-hmm. You do. Um, and uh, so now we're going to talk about how you make an alloy. Mm-hmm. Uh, basic metallur- metallurgy. Involves melting the components together. So you take uh, your tin and you take your copper and you melt them together 
and you mix it up so they're all nicely mixed and thoroughly mixed, and then uh, you come out with bronze. So it doesn't always involve melting, but uh, for bronze, it certainly did. Yes. In fact, I, I saw a really, a really in that same video, the BBC one, they actually demonstrated how an ancient uh, uh, metallurgist would, or even a, a bladesmith, would create co- uh, bronze blades by melting the copper and the tin down pouring it into a a mold and going from there. So that's pretty cool. So we do have copper alloys like the copper arsenic alloy we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And bronze was the one that really changed things. Uh, That, as we've said, is an alloy of copper and tin. Uh, Sometimes you have other elements in there. It's more flexible than copper. It's stronger than copper. It's able to hold an edge longer than copper. Mm -hmm. So this was the first time we actually had a material that had the qualities necessary to make a sword, a practical weapon. Yeah, but uh, bronze, the the ratio of copper to tin varied by region. Yep. So in China, uh, they preferred higher concentrations of tin, about 20% or so, which uh, made a harder alloy, but it was more brittle. Yeah. Um, and because bronze could still bend, particularly in places that favored a mixture of around like 10%. 10% tin, yeah. Tin, tin yeah. Uh, sword designs also tended to have or sword designs tended to have a wide curve shape to them to help with the bending to to keep from bending too much. Uh, to, I see. So that way, if you encounter a force when the sword hits something, it distributes it along mm-hmm. greater surface area. Yeah. Uh, a popular design was called the leaf blade sword, which had a blade that curved out just a little bit before the hilt. Right. So if you look at ancient Greece uh, and you look at the swords that were produced in ancient Greece, you will often see this leaf blade. Also, uh, it's one that was used a lot in uh, in Lord of the Rings. Like there are some of the Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings weapons had sort of this leaf blade look to it. And so you've got this kind of uh, blade. You know, it's a short sword typically. So it's a, it's a fairly you know wide blade that comes out, tapers to a point. But just before it, you hit the hand guard, it... It it curves outward a bit, so it's got this sort of leaf shape to it. They're pretty cool. Yeah. Now, a sword maker working with this bronze alloy would heat it in coals until it was molten, um, and then it would he would pour the molten mixture into a sword mold, mm-hmm. and then cool it down until the bronze was hardened, and then the mold would be broken away. And you'd have your sword, and then you'd finish it and shape it. And right. Buff right. It out. Yeah, because you would essentially have a a sword. A, a a sword shaped hunk of bronze, and mm-hmm. you would obviously it wouldn't be ready to go immediately because you would still need to um, you would still need to to sharpen it and shape it a little bit. Yeah, you would also add need a hilt. To add a hilt, very important. Uh, the next big material humans used to make weapons from was iron. So the Bronze Age transitioned into the Iron Age at different times for various regions, just as the Bronze Age had transitioned at different times for different regions from the Stone Age. So in other words, it wasn't like one day, there was a Wednesday where everyone woke up and said, welcome to the Iron Age. That's not how it worked. Darn, that would amuse me. It would have been fun. Yeah. There'd be a great musical involved. But uh, no, it was not that way. The way it worked was that cer- certain regions uh, began to develop technology with iron more early, uh, earlier, not more early. Jonathan needs more coffee earlier <laughs> than other regions. Uh, in fact, India was a big one. India, they, mm-hmm. they started working with iron very early. So did uh, some other areas of Asia. But giving a range uh, for the Iron Age is pretty tough. Um, in general, you could say it began around 1400 BCE in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. Big surprise. That's actually where we also found the copper yeah. alloy yeah. swords. 
Uh, now, making a sword out of iron isn't as easy as it sounds. No. <laughs> um, first of all, you have to get iron ore and then smelt it so that you can even work with it in the first place. So you can't just be like, oh, here's my... Here's a big hunk of iron sticking just, out of the ground. Yeah, I just pulled it out of the ground. Now I'm good to go. No, anyone um, who's played Minecraft knows you gotta you got to yeah. throw that th- sucker in a furnace first. Yeah, and in the good old days, uh, this was called bloomery. Yeah. Because it would make like a little bubbly bloom of metal. Yeah. Um, essentially, a blacksmith would use charcoal and bellows to heat up the iron ore. Not only would let would this let the iron like heat up and become melty, but it would add carbon from the charcoal and carbon monoxide uh, into it, um, in, into the process. And that would add carbon to the metal. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you would get is a spongy porous material called a bloom. Yep. And uh, so this this was different from bronze in that they weren't melting it. You know, mm-hmm. you have to you have to go hot, much hotter with iron yeah. than you do with copper in order to melt it. Uh, so they were not getting it quite to that temperature. But the blooms, the this spongy kind of looking stuff, uh, it had holes in it. And part mm-hmm. of the reason it had holes in it is that the iron ore had a lot of oxygen in it. Mm-hmm. And that carbon, some of it went, would transfer over into the iron. Some of it would combine uh, like the carbon monoxide given off by the the charcoal would combine with the oxygen that was inside the iron and you would get carbon dioxide as yeah. a byproduct. So you would hammer and shape the bloom, which would help remove some of the impurities. Uh, but even then, once you had shaped the iron, iron actually is, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty soft metal. Mm-hmm. So it also does not hold an edge very well. You have to continuously, you know, resharpen your blade because you would dull it as you would use it. So typically, the early iron swords were made by heating the bloom, you would hammer it, you'd let it cool, and then you'd start that process all over again. And this was called work hardening because you are actually using physical work, the hammering, to get the iron into a state suitable for use as a sword. Um, there's a different type of hardening that's used later, but the early w- versions were work-hardened swords. Yeah. Um, and so these were kind of marginal improvements over bronze swords. In fact, you could argue that a bronze weapon might be superior in some cases to an iron one. However, iron ones became incredibly popular. And it wasn't because they were better. It was because tin was relatively rare. Copper was everywhere. Mm -hmm. People could find copper. What they couldn't find was tin. And since you needed to add the tin to the copper to make bronze, and then iron, all you had to do was heat it up and then smack it around with a hammer, iron won out. Yeah, and uh, you'd you'd want iron over just copper. But you'd want steel... Over both of those. Yes. Uh, and that actually brings us to the last huge advance in sword making, which uh, came about when uh, they discovered that you could add specific amounts of carbon to the iron to create the alloy steel. Yes. Um, and in the smelting process, some carbon would be introduced to the iron, um, the carbon from the charcoal. Uh, but it's tricky. You know, obviously you're guessing with that. Yeah, it's it's very imprecise. And in fact, mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of scholarship suggesting that early steel swords were created purely by chance. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't that someone said, hey, I bet if I added some of this stuff to some of this stuff, it'll be way better. It just because of the way swords were made, some swords were more iron and some swords were more steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, Europe, they used pattern welding into the early Middle Ages where they would take iron 
and steel rods of different hardnesses and twist them and fold them together. And that was kind of a, a pretty early way of trying to get that. That mixture just that right. That mixture just right. Yeah. So when we say the mixture being just right, we are talking about tiny amounts of carbon added to the iron in order to create steel. Typically between 0.2 and 1.5% of the overall alloy. That's, that's yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, you know, it's not, not the simplest thing in the world to do. And it was so tricky that it was pretty late into the medieval era before more than a few sword makers outside of India could produce steel reliably. Um, so if you look at, at the earliest discoveries of steel, also steel was resistant to oxidation, which means it would not rust the way iron would. It, mm-hmm. it can rust, but it does so less readily. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a very valuable metal, but in India, people had figured out how to make it fairly uh, reliably. Mm-hmm. And outside of India, it was much more touch and go all the way up into the Middle Ages and even into the Middle Ages for some areas. So the earliest method of attempting to produce steel reliably was called cementation. So they would take iron and they put that inside a container made from something that had a lot of carbon in it. And that container would be heated in a furnace. And sometimes this would go on for days, sometimes just for hours, but sometimes you'd put it in a furnace and leave it there for days. During that heating process, some of the carbon from the container would migrate and enter the iron. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the process, if everything went well, you had steel. Now, you see, when you said cementation, I thought you meant you put the iron into a cement block and then you threw it into the ocean. That's pretty much the way I would have to do it because I know that I would never. I mean, to me, it's amazing that anyone ever figured this stuff out. Yeah. Like it's a you know, we, we take it for granted today. But somebody, somebody somewhere in the past had to figure out that this is how you make it happen. And that is phenomenal. So it's steel is way harder than iron or bronze. It can mm-hmm. keep an edge longer than either of those. It's also flexible if you make the steel properly. Obviously, if if you put too much carbon in it, it can become brittle. So mm-hmm. that you don't want that in in either armor or weapons. Yeah. Uh, but it, with the right amount, it was flexible. It was resistant to corrosion and rust compared to iron. So it was pretty much the better material to iron in every single important way. Mm-hmm. And. Out of all the types of steel used in all the swords in the world, there is probably one steel that is the most legendary, and that is Damascus steel. Yeah. Uh, which wasn't made in Syria. It was made in, surprise, surprise, India. Yeah. Uh, the, the, there's some different scholarship on this. There are two different types of steel that are referred to as Damascus steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is patterned steel, which yeah. we kind of talked about a little bit earlier. And then the other type is Woot's steel. Woot! Yeah. So it's supposed to be really, really strong. Um, and I say supposed to be because we don't know how it's made anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But, they could figure out how to mix tiny amounts of carbon with iron to make steel and we can't figure out how to make woot steel. Yeah. No, it's it, the, the, especially, essentially the recipe for woot steel mm-hmm. has been lost to time. So whatever the methodology was, there have been a lot of people who have claimed that they were able to replicate woot's steel, mm-hmm. but from everything I have read, no one has successfully done so. And so it's interesting to me that a methodology that was was mastered more than a thousand years ago mm-hmm. is totally lost to us. Well, I think that's partially because sword making 
fell out of practice for a while because sure. we have guns and other things right. like that. And right. now with this maker society, it's coming back into fashion. Yeah. Actually, one of the videos I watched in preparation for this had a guy, uh, fashion a sword. He found, um, uh, leaf springs mm-hmm. from an old, uh, probably an old trailer. Like, uh, yeah. you know, leaf springs part of the, 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 the system on a trailer, uh, and use that as the means of creating a sword. And, uh, even then starting from a piece of material that is roughly the size of what you want it to be, mm-hmm. even then it was incredible to see what kind of work goes into making one of these. Yeah. And I mean, I, I watched a video as well and he was, uh, talking a lot about how Viking swords and how the Vikings forged and used their swords. And, a lot of that knowledge is passed by word of mouth. And yeah. even if it's written down, if someone doesn't use it, that piece of pa- parchment or paper, or whatever, is going to degrade. And yeah, yeah. Know. So most of the, most of the time, you would look at it from master to apprentice. Mm-hmm. But as sword making fell out of fa- favor, there was no need to have an apprentice. Yeah. So you then get to a point where this art is largely lost and you know some of it has been written about especially as people were puzzling out how is it that this one sword is so much more boss than this mm-hmm. other sword uh so this this has been really an interesting discussion now it's just the first part of our talk on swords and sword technology in our next episode we're going to go through the process of actually making a sword. So we wanted to really cover things like the basic parts of a sword and the basic materials that swords are made from in this episode because uh, it's just way too much information to cram into a single episode. Yeah. So looking forward to doing that next episode. You guys tune in so you can hear how swords were actually made back in the old days as well as some information about how they're made today. We'll also kind of go through a few different types of swords mm-hmm. to uh kind of explain how crazy wide a variety there are in these things. Yeah. And uh who knows, we may end up geeking out about some, you know, fantasy swords as well. So Ariel, thank you for joining me on this episode. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to us continuing this conversation in mere moments, but for everyone else it's gonna be a week. And uh guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff Whether it's a technology or a company or a person, or maybe there's a guest you would like me to have on the show, either as an interview or a guest host, please let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, on Twitter, on Tumblr, and all three. I am techstuffhsw, and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 